What's up, fam? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And today I bring you another audio exclusive podcast. This time I'm with Chelsea Green. But before I tell you about that, I just want to say that I hope everyone's staying safe out there with this corona going around. I know we're all probably holed up inside, so I hope uh, these podcasts bring you some sort of sanity. Uh, something i don't know i'm trying i'm i might be reaching here but we all could use a little bit of entertainment and escape from the constant conversation that everyone's talking about i'm so sick of having the corona conversation with everyone but anyways guys this is uh the one of two or the two of two um audio exclusive interviews because i messed up the video which i don't want to talk about it again but you can hear more about that in the intro with the noel one but chelsea green is a really awesome woman she is a documentary filmmaker who travels the world and she just uh, finished her screening tour run of her uh, documentary about the vanishing people in Borneo, the native tribes of Borneo. And uh, it was really fascinating to hear her experiences about that, her life traveling the world, and how we can become more conscious of our environment and the pollution in general. Really eye-opening interview. And so I was just super sad that I couldn't get this one on the YouTube. Ugh. Audio only feels like such a waste of content. But anyways... I love this interview. I know you guys will too. Enjoy. That's the angle. That's the podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Chelsea Green. What's going on? Hi. I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is exciting because tonight is the, the first screening of your new documentary. Um, so I've screened it a few times. Okay. It's been through five different film festivals now. Whoa. But this is a special friends screening because I just recently got an award in at Cinema Verde Film Festival in Florida for Borneo's Vanishing Tribes, mm-hmm. the film. Um, at, it was for Compassion, the Compassion Award. Okay. It's very exciting. And so, yeah, I'll be showing it to a group of friends. And it's like my homecoming. I've been traveling for the past year. So coming back to D.C. and seeing everyone again, getting to show them my film. It is a special screening. Yeah, it must, it must, be, <laughs> it must be weird coming back to, like, normal society. Because yeah. just looking at you on social, it just seems like you're doing a lot of awesome shit. Yes, thank you for saying that. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> I mean, I blew my own mind this past year. Really? Yeah. Like, I can't believe that it's possible that I did all those things. I went to 14 countries in one year. Wow. And I didn't plan out much of it. I only planned the first three months, India, Nepal, and Bhutan, hiking the Everest region, doing like a Himalayan Buddhist pilgrimage to study meditation and Buddhism. Whoa. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Africa Burn and South Africa, you know, continental change up, and then we'll see what happens from there. And Whoa. Yeah. So, but when you planned that first trip, you it was just for fun, like personal? Yeah. Just for fun, personal. Because I spent the entire 20, like I haven't made an income since 2018. I spent the whole year of 2018 working in DC. I did a TV show called Trending China. Wait, did you say you didn't make any income? Yeah. I haven't made any money since 2018. I'm just surviving on all the money I made working on Trending China. Oh, whoa. (laughs) That is awesome. Holy shit. And you're, I mean, yeah. Not that it matters, but that's just a crazy awesome fact, you know? Yeah, but I want to add on that is just that anyone can travel for a pretty low budget. It's just the fact of getting there. Like, for instance, I spent four months in Africa. I didn't spend more than $4,000 because every night I was staying in a hostel or with a family and we would cook together as a community and save a lot of money that way. So, like, the most expensive part was, like, just getting there. Just the flights, yeah. And then, oh. you know, it's not even uncomfortable. I like hostels. You meet a lot of people, and I always sleep well in a bed. So, <laughs> That's a lot of traveling, though. Were you, at some point, were you homesick, or were you just kind of like, oh, I'm here for now? 
I never really got homesick. Everything I was doing was so exciting. Yeah, I was about just... to say, those images are so amazing. Like, if anyone's listening oh, right now, thank you so please much. look her up on Instagram. It's like Chelsea underscore, or no, no, it's C. S-E-A underscore underscore green. Yeah. C green, yeah. And you'll just get instant FOMO because <laughs> the images you have are beautiful too. Like, you definitely you. take good photos. Like, those are sweet. Like, the chameleon one you just posted and oh, like how you talked you. about how it sells or like crystals. That was crazy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I actually was mind blown when I heard about chameleon skin pigmentation because they used to think that chameleons were like other color changing animals mm -hmm. where the cells have little sacks of pigments in them and then according to like the hormonal signaling the pigments will like spread out in like a spidery pattern but they recently found out oh. that actually the um, chameleon skin has a lattice work of nanometer crystals that the exact spacing between the crystals can deflect or reflect or absorb different wavelengths of light. And Whoa. so the pigmentation comes from the that the chameleon somehow really rearranging the nanometer sized um, crystals within its skin. What <laughs> the skin that is crazy. Yeah. And I love that you even care about that. Like, I don't even know where you found out about that, but that's so cool. <laughs> There's a new study that just came out. So yeah, with my social media, I'm trying to get people more excited about nature and uh, make it not about me as much as possible, but sort of use my own voice to get people excited about different areas of nature and uh, discovering different stories to tell. One of my favorite stories that I discovered on my travels yeah. was the Renzori Mountains of Uganda. And what they were able to do was by building the hiking trails, they started to employ the people who were poaching up there for thousands of, or for, you know, as, as long as the mountains have existed, people yeah. have been poaching animals out of the national park. It turned into a national park. And then my friend from Australia who started the company built the trails and hired the poachers as porters and guides for this trucking company. And oh, yeah, so they've they, seen they the wildlife the lands, population yeah. come back. Oh, and they've been able whoa. to recover the wildlife population. And then they used a lot of the profits from the trucking company into building schools, building new schools for the local populations and doing conservation education. Whoa, so, this guy is amazing. Holy shit. I like know. all just from that idea of building a trail and he hiring, hiring poachers, like the impact of that, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the impact is insane. And then now the future generations are being educated on the importance of protecting their environment. And yeah. so it's just this gorgeous habitat that has animals that don't exist anywhere else. Where, and where was that? And the border with Congo and Uganda. That's so crazy. What, yeah. what what fascinates me about you is how much you love the environment, but also like it blows my mind that you even care about places that far away. Like, why <laughs> do you care about places like Uganda or oh, like or, or like or like Borneo? Like, I'm so curious. Like, how does like I feel like I'm, we deal with so many things on a daily basis for me to start worrying about the path in Uganda. I'm just sort of like, what? Like, it just. <laughs> Well, I think the Uganda story is a really good example of how bringing ecotourism to an area can protect wildlife and even help it thrive mm. while educating future generations on the importance of it. And everything is interconnected. This is why I care so much is because the rainforests of Borneo have a profound effect on our day-to-day -day life, even though most people don't know this. Yeah, can, I mean, can, can we talk about that and and, yeah. and that film since this is like the hot thing tonight Yay, and it's everything vanishing please tribes. educate me because i know nothing so act like i'm stupid because i am okay <laughs> so 
Borneo. <laughs> <laughs> Narrative voice. Yes. It's the world's yeah. third largest island. Whoa. It's located south of Thailand in the Indonesian archipelago. And it's until the 1980s, it was one of the largest, actually the second largest consecutive uncut rainforest on the planet. Whoa. And it's the most biodiverse in terms of trees and plant species. And the indigenous tribe, the Dayak, they live there and they've lived there for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And they have a most beautiful religion. They believe that of the interconnectedness of life is their religion. It's their deity. It's the everything. They rely on the forest and they're most like indigenous populations around the world are really good at taking care of the forest. Yeah. And, um, it's a part of who they are. Yeah, it's their entire identity. Mm-hmm. It's their life. And what's happening is that international palm oil companies are going in and flattening the forest to create monoculture palm oil plantations. So the timber companies go in and take the timber of most value, sell that for furniture, which you may consume. And then the palm oil companies do slash and burn you know, with the support of the Indonesian government, because there's six Indonesian billionaires who are pretty much, fun, you know, paying off the government to allow this to happen. And then they burn it and drain the peat swamp. And the thing about Borneo that's really important is that it sits upon a bed of peat, 20 meters of partially decomposed the organic entire matter. Island? Yeah, the, well, the biggest peat dome is in the central part of the southern part of the island, central Kalimantan. And so it's like 20 meters of the most potent carbon sink on Earth. The Amazon rainforest can only absorb this much carbon as sequestration and storing it, carbon storage capability. But the Bornean forest can do 18 to 20 times more carbon, 18 to 28 times more carbon than other forests. And that's how the forest filters the air. And and that, that, what is it? You said the the depth of it? What was that? The, The... so the forest sits on top of a bed of peat Ah. and the soil is very rich and it's a potent carbon sink it's absorbed so when the trees absorb the co2 and convert oxygen Mm -hmm. they store it in their roots and also in the soil Mm. in the in the biomass right so that includes the trees and roots and sticks and trunk and soil okay and all of that biomass from my understanding, it's created because of years and years of time where things yeah, die and they like get buried and new things come on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. So what sets Borneo apart is how potent it is as a carbon sink. It can absorb oh. so much more carbon than other than any other forest. And the fact that they're doing slash and burn for monoculture palm oil plantations is ridiculous because then when they burn it, the peat is very flammable because, of course, it's filled with carbon from thousands of years of sequestration. And so then it releases like a carbon bomb into what, the atmosphere. What's sequestration? Sequestration Sequestration is absorbing carbon okay. and storing it. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it's normal people. That's new. Okay. Okay. New okay. vocab, sequestration. Okay. I like that. <laughs> thank, thank you. Okay. So that's yeah. interesting. So the people of Borneo, they have this rainforest that is it, the trees are rich in palm oil or is it that the ground is rich in palm oil oh so they're converting the ancient rainforest into palm oil plantations by chopping down all the trees yeah so the oil so palm oil that comes in your snacks like your cheap snacks you know it comes in cosmetics it's like the stuff that makes chapsticks shiny and it's in shampoos and cheap detergents pretty much if it's cheap you can assume it's because somewhere they're exploiting the planet and they're not doing it sustainably so I'm, yeah uh, i remember hearing that palm oil is in like a lot of products a lot of products but you can figure it out as a responsible consumer you can read the label and sometimes it'll say outright palm oil but other times it'll say vegetable oil and if it has more than 40 percent saturated fat in the product it's almost certainly palm oil 
So as consumers, we can all make the choice to not buy it. But what's better than just boycotting it is speaking to your local supermarket owner, whoever you shop from, talk to the manager, talk to that company, tweet at them, send them messages, however you can get in touch with them and say, we only want to buy products that are deforestation free. So is palm oil bad? Palm oil in itself? Good question. <laughs> so palm oil comes from the African oil palm, which okay. is endemic to Africa. And they are sustainably creating palm oil in West Africa in an area that's already been deforested by the Dutch hundreds of years ago. Jesus. And they're, so they're growing the palm oil there, but it's not a monoculture. They have endemic plants living within the oil palm trees. They have cacao. They because also, monoculture means that when they tear it down, like they deforest it, they tear it down, burn it all, and then when they plant it, it's only that. Yeah, And exactly. that's terrible for ecosystems. I, I know that yes. much that as far as biodiversity, that's incredibly bad. Oh, yeah, Especially so for bad. a place like the Amazon. Yeah. Okay. But studies actually show that palm oil grown sustainably can produce just as much, if not more, of a product and sustainably over time than chopping the forest to replace it with monoculture palm oil because like any plant, oil palm needs pollinators and native bird species to help it thrive. And so when they make the palm oil sustainably in West Africa, Dr. Bronner's is a company that does that for their soap products. And they actually were one of the funders on the film oh, wow. <laughs> Then that's done sustainably and can create more palm oil. But they're doing slash and burn, creating vast monoculture palm oil plantations with just oil palm trees that aren't even native. Nothing can grow there. They kill all the orangutans. And this is in Borneo. Yeah, in so Borneo. And it's expanding many places in the world. Plenty, Many rainforests in Africa are getting cut down. Even their they're even creating oil palm plantations in the Amazon rainforest. So thing that comes to my mind is why is this able to happen? Like it feels like this is the indigenous people's land and I don't know how their government right. is run, but yeah. why are foreign entities allowed to come into their land and, and do all this stuff? That's a good question. So Wilmar is one of the large, there's a good, they're a good example. They're a company um, that is tight with the Indonesian government, a lot of corruption, and then they sell to companies like Nissan for cup noodles or um, Procter & Gamble or Colgate Palmolive for toothpaste. So sometimes it's and a national- And there's palm oil in those products. Oh yeah. Okay. So nationally in, in Indonesia, they might be a local company, but they're supplying to all these international brands. Sometimes international National brands can just come in and they steal land with the help of the Indonesian government. So, yeah, we're going to be very political here. The Indonesian government, they have a great tourism industry. They have the, a lot of opportunities to make just as much money, if not more, sustainably. But they're choosing to steal land from indigenous people and convert it all to palm oil plantations. Yeah, that seems really <laughs> weird to me that like the fact that they have this amazing indigenous peoples, but they're kind of exploiting them in their lands for their economy, essentially, because this yeah. goes back into their pockets, back into the economy, back into probably the ecosystem of Indonesia. Are yeah. they viewing this as a sort of a greater good thing, or is this sort of like a corruption thing? Like, what's the situation? Oh, it's all a corruption thing. Really? Yesterday, I was talking with my friend Meta. She does education in this little village in the ancient forest of Borneo, which is still beautiful, pristine forest. And I still, I check up on her like every couple of months. How is Kubung Village? Because the village next to it she was just saying the governor of that area is the owner of the palm oil plantation so the government and the corporation are now one in the same oh <laughs> it's whoa. so bad so it's all kind of fused together yeah That's everyone's right. getting on board on board to exploit is this new 
Yeah, the palm oil, um, the palm oil crisis just started, I guess, in 2012 onward. And then in 2015 was when they had fires. They did so much slash and burn for palm oil that the fires spread out of control. It was an El Nino year. You know, climate change was warming up the forest, making it more vulnerable to fire. Actually, over 10,000 people per year die from smoke inhalation, from particulates from peat swamp forests. Whoa. Whoa. Mm -hmm. In Indonesia alone. And then if you count Malaysia, it's much more. Over 100,000 people died. Like naturally? From inhaling the smoke. But but because of natural causes, not from... No, from the palm oil being... The fires set for palm oil. Wow. Killed that many people. And no one talks about this. No, this isn't talked about. (laughs) This is why you're blowing my mind. I'm so fascinated by it because it's like, you know... It's so easy to be so wrapped up in this tiny little DC government life and mm-hmm. my own podcast and everything I've got going on and and all these things. And so it's why I was like, ooh, Chelsea's in town. I got to like make an oh, exception so to good. get her on because I know you're doing something that's so unique and rare. Mm. And so what at what point did you look at this and decide to make this film? How did how did that all happen? So I went to AU for the um, Master's in Environmental and Wildlife Filmmaking, Mm -hmm. and I learned about the palm oil situation, and I was just struck by the injustice of it. Like, Mm -hmm. how can you destroy a forest that's so important for our global climate? You know, we're headed straight over this cliff of catastrophic, irreversible climate change, and the forests are our last hope of mitigating this change, unless we, like, really change, like, all Mm -hmm. of our emissions, which is going to take much longer to change than just protecting the forest. So I was struck by the injustice that they would, for a little cookie, for an Oreo cookie, for all these cheap products, just to increase the bottom line of these giant corporations, destroy old forests and the lives of the indigenous people while they're at it. And so, yeah, I was, I just had to do something about it. And I found a pro this project through Kent Wagner. He's the director of the film. It was, this is like my first film project where I've been a part of it the whole way through and we've done it, we did it together. And so, yeah, that's how I got on board with that film, but it's just set in motion sort of my whole life mission now, which is to be able to assist and create campaigns to help protect forests for the indigenous people so they can protect it for everyone. Oh, so not only do you care about the environment, but you were like by trade, you're like a videographer. Yeah. Like a very talented one too. I think even before Thank I knew you, you do yeah. all the stuff in documentary, I remember looking at your reel a long time ago, like, holy shit, like this girl's good. Like, oh, and you. it always had something to do nature or environment based, but mm-hmm. it seems like you kind of found this thing and you're like, yo, this is my sort of thing now. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, yeah. So I've always wanted to be a filmmaker ever since I was in middle school and I started watching environmental films and I watched stories like an inconvenient truth or a super size me or oh, blackfin yeah. we all saw those. yeah exactly Oof. and i don't know it just inspired me so much i was like this i've always wanted to do video and so being able to make a difference at the while you're at it is my goal but that's the thing is just making a film in itself doesn't do shit <laughs> so, so, so well, and i think we'll get there but so how how did this start like this entire documentary thing like how does that start like Walk me through this. I'm so curious. How did I start my documentary career? Yeah, like how did no, like like how did the this documentary that you that you just are oh, yeah, releasing and showing like tracks. how did, um, like how did that all start? Do you just kind of say, hey Kent, let's make this? Like what is like what is that process like? 
Yeah, so we start have meeting, having meetings about what we want the film to do, what you want the outcome to be. Because you, you always have to have an actionable thing that people, when they get done watching the film, can go and do right away. Mm. Um, so then we did like six months of research. We did Skype meetings with scientists who were on the ground, with people who working in various organizations on the ground. And then we planned a production trip where he would go to West Kalimantan, I would go to Central Kalimantan. We had people and interviews lined up to do while we were there. And then we come back and log and transfer all the footage, put the script together, translate all the interviews, you know, in Dayak, Nice, or Indonesian Bahasa, and then start to put the script together and put the film together. Well, so it it's three years. Is it about <laughs> saving the tribes, or it is a, it, or is it about like sh showing the tribes to deliver the message of let's look at how palm oil is harvested? Like, what's the yeah. central thing there? So yeah, it's a few things at once because if you protect the people who protect the forest, then you're protecting the forest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to tell the story that was a little bit different. We did a lot of research. Whenever you start a film, you need to see what other films have been done on this topic so you can offer a new perspective. And there's lots of stuff about orangutans. That's a little <laughs> bit overdone. And there's lots of stuff about the climate science involving protecting tropical forests, especially potent carbon sequestering peat forests like Borneo. So we wanted to bring a more human component that people People could connect with and so the oh. Dayak are a perfect group because they're also really artistic and cool like their art is so unique they all have tattoos that mean very specific things that you wouldn't see that pattern yeah, what anywhere was it, else what was it like like going to Borneo and like meeting these people what was yeah. that like so oh, the Dayak were very welcoming um, first of all I flew into Palankaraya, central Kalimantan which was the epicenter of the wildfires and haze in 2015 so it was, it was like an ecological war zone Whoa. it was very scary and sad and people live in immense poverty and this sort of globalization and converting all of this land to palm oil has taken away the livelihoods of all the residents there and they're trying to make their way in the global market um, and so I got in a car with uh, my driver, my translator, and my guide. We drove into the nearest forest, which took 14 hours through Whoa. just as far as you can see palm oil plantations. Just really, palm oil. I wasn't even driving through forest. It was just both sides palm oil plantations. Oh yeah, for 14 hours, Whoa. and then we rolled up finally to like the edge of the forest on the edge of the palm oil plantation, and went into this Dayak village, and they welcomed me to the village with a ceremony. What was that? It was very fun. Yeah, what was the ceremony? Because it involved so their traditional brewed rice wine <laughs> Whoa. so you sit in the village in their ceremonial space they had all the people in the village there they were playing percussive instruments and they put the rice wine down in front of me I was across from the oldest woman of the village and the oldest man of the village here and the chief of the village the four of us and we do like the thing where you ch like tap the glass and then you take a they swig. even tap the glass down too <laughs> yeah. that's good to know that people in Borneo still tap when they take shots okay yep <laughs> and then we drank the wine and then we did the horn build dance which is like the hornbill is the sacred bird of the dyak their creation myth involves two hornbills in a tree getting it on oh. and creating all of humankind um but yeah so we did the hornbill dance and then the whole ceremony was basically like welcoming to the, me to the village by having me drink more wine and do more hornbill dancing was it and then they asked me to kiss their babies <laughs> wow wow <laughs> but was it at all like intimidating or was it at all kind of like serious at all like i can imagine that moment where you pull up to this place after riding palms and 
you like meet the elders like that's gotta be so intimidating for you like what is that like like what were you thinking when then they're like yo now we have to get drunk or something like what is that (laughs) what were you feeling during that well it's really interesting visiting a tribe that's doesn't have much contact with the outside world that's so remote that they never really see people with white skin much less with blonde hair yeah you must have freaked them out touching my hair and really excited to talk to me and that was a fascinating social situation they must have lost their shit looking at you i could <laughs> i could only imagine where like you only know brown people with dark hair and yeah. also you come in you probably look like an angel coming down if, <laughs> if, if, if you're listening to this she has blonde hair and extremely blue eyes and a really fair complexion like i could imagine like the, what, like the kids were thinking like oh yeah is this real and of course i just sat in the car for days so i'm like wanting to do some yoga and all the kids were i was like did a little yoga class and taught the kids how to do yoga um it it wasn't intimidating for me because they were all just so open and receptive to getting to know me it was more of just heart touching and very fascinating to see how they live without like they don't need a grocery store they get everything from the forest you never felt like they're very sustainable oh wow but you never felt like your life was in danger going to that tribe. No, I had my friends who, my friend um, is one of the founders of Wallhi, which is an organization that takes palm oil companies to court on behalf of these villages that are getting unfairly taken over by oh, these companies. Wow. And he's very well regarded in, in the community and he often visits the village and he's viewed as like their, you know, protective uncle. And so he personally introduced me and was just like, don't mess with her. And it was fine. <laughs> oh, so you kind of had like his blessing in a way because they all kind of knew who he was and yeah. what he did for them. And my friend Meta too, she's a wonderful palm, or she's a wonderful Dyak activist woman who is my exact same age and she's Bornean herself and she a speaks Dyak the language. Activist. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she knows them well. She does educational programs. And one great way to support the cause, if you want to help the situation with the Dyaks in Borneo, is to support the Kubun Kids Learning Space, where she does all these programs to bring education to the villages, teach the kids how to speak English, teach the kids how to understand what palm oil does to the environment mm. on a global and a local scale. And teaches them how to respond when the companies come and try to bribe them or try to entice them into entering the global market and giving up their forest land. So you're saying that the company comes in and they directly speak to the Diaknese people? Mm-hmm. And what do they say? Well, a lot of times they'll come in and they'll try to convince the elders of the village to sign away their land by offering them a job on the palm oil plantation and then in trying to entice them with modernity, you know, like a cell phone or a moped. They're like, if you want to have these things, then let us cut down your trees and turn it into palm oil. And a lot of times the Dyak villages are split. Like a lot of the women, it's a trend. The women don't want, you know, because they're caring about the future. They're like, once the forest is gone, how are we going to eat? We can't eat palm oil. And so that's a big problem i mean i saw the villages that had already been converted to plantations and the people just didn't look as healthy because they were buying like normal western food or like normal food from the store that was like come in plastic packages that's a completely different diet like living off the land and hunting and gathering like that's so much different than going to 7-Eleven or now yeah. being like modernized, I guess. Exactly. And when you go to the ancient forest where the, where the Dyag live traditionally, their skin is like glowing and their hair and they just look like the picture of health. And it's just like, that's so sad that they're taking their health and their lives away too, because they don't even pay them enough once they work on the plantation. There's a range of amounts that they'll get paid once the land is taken and converted. So why and would they, they ever agree the then? 
Um, I don't know. That's one thing we have to try to start addressing with education is, you know, maybe they're not seeing the full picture of what's going to happen because it is very alluring to want to be like a person on you see on TV. Although a lot of times they haven't seen TV, but are, are they, they that, do. like how isolated are these people? Like you showing up, if they clearly they don't even look at TV if they don't know what you look like, but like is a cell phone alien to them no they do have cell phones and <laughs> they wear like clothes that people come and donate to them from like secondhand stores so they might have um clothes with modern brands on them and oh, stuff that's so. gonna throw you off a little bit right like yeah, you kind of, you kind of almost weird. expect or want them to be in the garb or something but you're kind yeah. of like are you wearing fubu but that's the reality of visiting indigenous people in this modern age and i just came back from a trip to the brazilian amazon and to bolivia following the situation did you hear about the fires this past year there were huge fires no, in brazil so yeah this year um i was you know, i was so consumed by the australian fires i didn't even yeah. hear about the brazilian fires so this happened in august through october was when the last fires finally went out um so this is my current film that i'm working on it's called yeah. the tipping point and it's about how the brazilian amazon and the amazon region in south america is one of our last hope for climate change. I mean, Borneo, it's there's only 20% of the forest left in Borneo. Wow. Yes, it's very sad. And we, we need to protect that last 20%. It's extremely important. Um, but we have the Brazilian and the rest of the Amazon, which still, it absorbs over 100 billion tons of carbon a year. And it's home to um, over 4 million indigenous people and um, in their traditional ways of life and even up to 30 tribes that are uncontacted have never been contacted and they're living in these remote areas of the of the amazon and so i've always been fascinated by the amazon and if you look at writers over time you know surmising what the future of the planet is with climate change they're always banking on the fact that the amazon isn't going to get cut down oh but i see like now, that's our last hope kind of thing it's like our last hope yes oh. um and so <laughs> It's nearing a tipping point. I interviewed several climate scientists. Uh, one of them, Carlos Nobre, who wrote the first paper in the 90s about the Amazon's tipping point. And so the science is that once you cut down enough of the Amazon forest, it won't be able to maintain its hydrological cycle where it pulls the moisture from the oceans and cycles the, oh, the moisture to keep it a rainforest. That's why it's a rainforest, right? And that's why it can support all this biodiversity. And Are you familiar life. with the work of Malcolm Gladwell? No, I don't know. Wow, it's so fascinating. I actually just listened. He has a book called The Tipping Point. Really? Yeah, and it's a fascinating book. And he goes through um, different cases throughout history in America, different places. And he identifies these situations where this one little thing was the tipping point that created this other enormous and large thing. Like whether wow. it was a trend or a, or a TV show, like the effectiveness of a TV show, or even, I guess, looking at that where there's this obvious point where point of no return where once this glass is overfilled or there's not enough, it can't refill itself. Yeah. I'm going to uh, have to read that. Yeah. You definitely got checked out. Yeah. Point, I really just came good. up with the name, the tipping point, because I feel like the tipping point science is the most pertinent science that everybody should know about right now. Interesting. Yeah. And so the theory goes is that once there's not, it can't maintain the hydrological cycle, vast amounts of the forest will dry out and over about 50 to 70 years be converted to a, a savanna. And that has like shrubs and, this and is it's in the not helpful for carbon sequestration or for global climate change at all. And in the process of being converted to a savanna, going to release enough carbon to push the other Earth systems tipping points like the methane and the permafrost and the last straw for the North Pole and all that stuff. How close are we to that tipping point in the Amazon? 
pretty much we're at the edge of this cliff. And if we go off the edge of the cliff, then what? Then the forest will become a tropical savanna and release billions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere. And then what happens? <laughs> and then we'll see climate change be irreversible and run away. We won't be able to contain it. This Whoa. is the this is the tipping point science. And by containing it, you mean about. like climate change will happen in a way where th- the temperature rises? Like what exactly is yeah. that fear? Is it that just global temperature rises? Yeah. So when the global temperature rises, then it's going to cause very intense weather events just out of control, like the fires in Australia. The fires in Australia this year were a result of the global temperature and the local temperatures being so hot, not enough consistent rainfall to keep the forest moist in any way so that it just was like tinder. It just went up in, in flames. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so we're going to have massive forest fires like what we saw in Australia, in California, in Siberia, just out of control. We'll have giant storms, sea level rise because the North Pole, all the poles of the ice will melt. And it's going to be very hard to survive on planet Earth. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have so many climate refugees. It's going to be disastrous. Yeah, because stuff like harvesting and rainforest is definitely a human-made thing. That's not something that can naturally happen or justify by saying, oh, it would naturally burn down. Like you can't, say that those no. those 14 miles of palm oil plantations would ever be there if it wasn't for humans. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So humans are creating this huge problem because they don't realize what a massive role the, the rainforest plays in stabilizing and maintaining our global climate systems. The yeah. Amazon forest creates this river in the sky, they call it, and it delivers water to parts of Brazil, to Sao Paulo, one of the you know Southern Hemisphere's most populous city, delivers water to the Midwest to, to water our crops that we eat from in America. It has far-reaching, they call it tele-effects from um, cutting down this forest. Well, it's just so hard for people in America, and let alone yeah, just America to understand because it's so distant. It's It seems like this imaginary thing, like the rainforest yeah. being gone. And you can't fathom these things until you've actually seen them, it feels like. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping to show it and inspire people and help them make that connection in their mind through the film. That the, the cheap meat that you're buying, a lot of these products from Costco, Walmart, um, you know, 7-Eleven. What do you mean cheap meat? What's, what's, what's wrong with my cheap chicken breast? So chicken is a little better. I think <laughs> mm-hmm. it's important to say that most beef that you buy, if it's like, you know, pretty cheap, it was fed soy that was harvested in the Amazon especially from Walmart, Costco, McDonald's, any Cargill that's also got palm oil from Borneo. So just be aware that the best thing you can do is buy local products, so all local are from you local companies. That palm oil and soy are like the two biggest like perpetrators of environmental destruction. Yeah. Is that what it is? And beef. So, but why beef? Well, because they're cut, they're cutting down the forest in the Amazon for beef cattle oh so in the amazon it's it's for beef supplies and then in borneo it's palm oil supplies yeah okay and soy and soy yeah and in bolivia i was just in bolivia for the massive fires they're also deforesting for soy and beef and it's not just the beef that's the problem it's leather products like if you buy from adidas a lot of these big brands shoe brands that are made in china it's not even the food industry it's the fashion industry yeah 
and it's it's timber like i have a whole list of companies that source from the brazilian amazon and from the amazon you know basin in general and it's fascinating to see like your shoe brands like they might be really cheap because they're made in china but the leather comes from the cows that are cutting down the amazon we don't think about that you never <laughs> yeah. think about adidas or nike being a big reason of why the amazon could be shutting down you may yeah. think like quickly like low labor child labor and all this stuff but you never think about the minor details of the rubber of that sole or mm-hmm. or the that patent leather of their 200 hundred dollar sneaker it's like you, these minor things that we that so easily escape us they're they add up you yeah know, quite enormously exactly they really do And so as a consumer, we really have to be super responsible. And the only way that, I mean, a massive boycott is not fast enough. I mean, they're chopping down the forest so fast. The satellite data from this year is already showing more deforestation. It's already breaking records. But who, who is chopping down the forest? A lot of the farmers in the Amazon, they're expanding their area and cutting down more trees to continue the conquest for these big beef companies and soy companies and to so first what happens is the legal loggers go in and they extract the timber of high value and then they call them grieros they're land grabbers and they have little crickets that poop on the documents to make them look old so they forge the document saying that they own that land and then they <laughs> take the Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what do you mean crickets pooping on documents to make you gotta explain yeah. this okay so this is a fun fact so the grieros the land grabbers in the amazon they forge documents they say that the land belongs to them but and who they, did who did they show that to like why to the brazilian government okay, okay. yeah because the, so essentially there's so much land that it's hard to keep track of who owns it mm-hmm. and so people who are these land grabbers guerreros they mm-hmm. can just okay okay keep going keep going yeah so they steal the land forge the documents the crickets make it look old like it's an old deed to the land oh i see what you're saying <laughs> like they what they weather it a little bit yeah okay. exactly and um so the problem right now that i was investigating on my film yeah. are the indigenous territories so indigenous land in brazil is protected under the brazilian constitution so before they had a military dictatorship that last lasted like 20 years and then they started a constitution and a democracy and so through that they did demarcation of indigenous lands mapping and demarcation and there's there's government entities that are in charge of this funai and then there's a couple others that help them do the geo mapping and stuff and so these indigenous territories they're very well protected the most protected land but in some cases, like in Rondonia, which is like the most cowboy redneck state of Brazil, all of the land that's not in indigenous territories is pretty much already gone. It's already been deforested. It's already converted to farms. Why? And so you see indigenous communities, little villages in like an island of trees amongst vast farms. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's like because the boundaries were drawn. Mm-hmm. And so here they are and they kind of, but that you can't live like that. You can't hunt, you can't farm, you can't, ha- and then yeah, not just that, all the it, pesticides and stuff probably leak into All the your pesticides vit- and it poisons them. Yes. Oh. They're having so, oh my God, indigenous people have been attacked for hundreds of years. I mean, since all of the history of Brazil, they were being murdered and getting their land stolen. And now it's just like they're doing it legally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we quickly translated from Borneo to Brazil, but at the end of the day, it's like they're experiencing the same sort of effects mm-hmm. of where these old people, indigenous people are suffering at the hands of modern 
people. Exactly. Still, it's all the same thing. Huh. Yeah. And so the new president, Bolsonaro, that's why this year is worse than any other year. It's because Bolsonaro came into power. Oh, really? Yeah. What, what, what did Bolsonaro do with all the indigenous land and everything? So he has been getting on TV and he's saying our economy is tanking because we're not using the Amazon for producing goods we can export, which, of course, is like one of those Trump kind of mentalities mm, is complete saying. lie saying that we need to deforest more land to increase our economy which is only increasing the wealth of a select few companies and people mm. and it's destroying an international resource that we need these trees to sequester carbon i mean where else are we going to get oxygen from the amazon produces 20 percent of our oxygen and he's just getting on tv encouraging the land grabbers and encouraging oh, wow. the farmers to go in and he's getting paid all sorts of money by jbs which is the largest meat company in the world oh and he's cargill and he's funded by huge global yes. companies that we don't even know about yes you probably do but the brazilian government i mean they used to have a good democracy but it has fallen it is now more of an oligarchy just really? like america completely fueled by big business but what's like the general population feeling of, of the whole Bolsonaro situation? So it's interesting. I talked with a lot of Brazilians about this. Um, anyone who, you know, cares about <laughs> and is very educated about the modern world is completely anti-Bolsonaro. And the reason he came in power was because the person before him who was going to run against him ended up getting put away for a fake corruption scandal. Magically something happened to them. Yeah. Exactly. Basically, you can hear all about this in the new documentary Edge of Democracy that's on Netflix. It's fascinating. Wow. And that and that covers how the whole Bolsonaro election and everything happened. Yeah. And there's so many parallels between what's happening in America, too. So is, is it very much divided there like it is here where there's two parties and one is for the deforestation? That doesn't make sense how you could be for deforestation. Like, I know. That seems so weird to me. Like, well, that they're seems for like, economy and they're, you know, oh, and it's also, we have, they have, we, and they're probably justifying it somehow. Yeah, they're justifying it, and it's totally backwards, right? Because the economy is going to fail when there's no forest and there's no water. So they're thinking short-term. <laughs> the forests bring water. Oh, yes, it's short-term profits for a select few people, and it's spreading the lies, and Bolsonaro has his own little fake news team that's working day and night to produce fake news and continue to keep people in the dark. Oh, and that's a big problem in Brazil. Um, people who are very rich will vote for Bolsonaro because it's like, you know, they don't want him to get their rich. income taxed yeah. and like keeps them rich. And even that is lies. And um, what makes the problem worse in Brazil is that they don't have a good... Um, they have they a lot of these people act with impunity people don't have there's no consequences like for instance they don't investigate murders in brazil and Wait, very what? few times when they investigate a murder is anyone actually uh, you know convicted <laughs> so they have a huge problem with people with violence and impunity it's the most dangerous place for people to be an environmentalist yeah. so anyone who's speaking out against the government gets whacked you might like just <laughs> mysteriously disappear kind of thing yeah right? a good example was galvao um i forget his first name he was in charge of the um satellite data government entity that was monitoring deforestation Whoa. he came out with the numbers about the deforestation and bolsonaro was in just Brazil. like that's fake news and then fired him <laughs> So, yeah, and people have, they don't, you know, a lot of the people who live in the countryside, a lot of this population, they're, they're living in poverty. They can't always afford data for their phone. And so they get this, like, WhatsApp mail that has a fake news article, and they can only see the headline. They're you know, they fed with, see, they're, like, they're fed with 
they want that they're meant to be fed by whoever mm-hmm. I, I just don't have enough perspective to think about the brazil economy or, or even what their lives are like, like the the stark differences probably in the people who live very modern in the cities versus mm-hmm. the people that probably live on the outskirts like i i just yeah, exactly. i don't imagine but whenever i think about it i always imagine like a big difference between them oh yeah huge I mean, I interviewed some of the people out in the country and uh, they're just trying to survive like any other person. They're not worried about that stuff. Yeah. Well, I feel like a long time ago I saw something about the crazy mountains of trash in Brazil. Oh, yeah. There's mounds of trash everywhere. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, that doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> but like, no, I could swear, like years ago I saw this quick documentary about these people who were working on a giant mountain of trash and they were getting paid to like sort through it and find certain things and find metals and stuff and it was like a big problem in brazil are you not are you aware of that at all i wasn't or? aware of that what's the documentary called i have no idea i've no forget i even said that because that I, I i thought maybe you knew more about that i just it just no, kind of yeah. came to my mind thinking about that yeah i mean i think all countries in the world are facing problems with how to dispose of all the waste that we're creating so quickly yeah, yeah. have you seen any of boylan slats work Mm-mm. The guy who's trying to uh, get rid of the plastic from uh, the oceans and leaking into oceans in the Amazon. Have you have you seen any of his new stuff? No. Oh wow. To see that. He's like this really young kid, kind of like Elon Musk esque, and he is d- pioneering clearing out plastics and all the all the waste from our rivers and streams. And so his approach is essentially not to deploy these things in the ocean, but he identified key rivers that are like the main vein rivers and then they will put these like robots or whatever they are in there and then that's how they filter it out is by stopping it there as opposed to just being in the ocean oh that's a good idea yeah i wish i knew like a lot more about it by and then as i understand the america is now sending a lot of our trash to indonesia which is then just dumping it in the ocean yeah like some (laughs) i know that indonesia itself creates enough trash every day to fill an 11-story building what that was what i just heard yeah <laughs> but yeah that's what plastic pollution is a huge problem and of course plastic is made from oil which they're also invading in amazon territories to drill for oil so are you just mentally past the whole borneo documentary and you're now focused on this new brazilian one i know because it, it, it's all in your connected i know it is connected <laughs> and it's like I, I i like i'm still so fascinated about the borneo but like yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure if you're just like oh fuck you're still talking about that or if you're like or if it's want. about like the brazilian for you now well, it's important to be fully engaged in and focused on whatever the current project is. But mm. Borneo, I still like Kent and I have to figure out our release strategy. We have to release it online and try to find a distributor. So because it's right now, it's just finished its film festival circuit. So now we have to figure out the next step. Is that what happens? You make the documentary, then you send it to film festivals first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because film festivals want exclusive showings. They don't want people to just be able to go online and watch it. They want to have like the exclusive. Yeah, because otherwise we would have released it a year ago, but it had to go through the film festival. Okay, so I'm so dumb. What exactly is a film festival? Is it just a bunch of people sitting around watching movies? So it's really cool. I just went to Cinema Verde in Florida. Um, They're arranged so that the filmmakers who make the films can come and lead workshops and discussions on the topics of their films. And then there's also activities built in. So um, 
the one that I just went to, there was also dance classes. It was kind of like a little music festival, but instead of music, there was film. There were films, and it's oh, a great way for I you to meet people that are working on really interesting projects. Because with environmental filmmaking, it's not like you can just make the film and then it's done. Because that's what I was saying before: is just making a film doesn't do anything. People have to be able to have a direct action to do after they see the film, and it needs to be accompanied with a campaign. You have to profit or you have to partner with nonprofits or people who are doing measurable work in that region, in that area for it to be effective. Oh, so like in the case of your Borneo movie where it's all done, it, it hits the film festival circuits. You have to have a call to action, AKA like, what was your call to action? Well, so for the Borneo thing, there's lots of things you can do. Like I said, just boycotting palm oil is a first step, but it's not going to be enough to address the problem and not in a timely manner. So the call to action is educating people about what's going on in Borneo and from the perspective, yeah, the awareness and then being able to know, um, what to do next is the palm oil situation. Every day you can make the choice to not buy palm oil, but the best thing to do is to talk to the people who are purveying the palm oil, talk to your local supermarket. Hopefully they will stop stocking those products. And then furthermore, you can, yeah. And if you want to physically go to Borneo, you can really help a lot there on the ground. That seems like a lot too. Oh, really? I mean, for a normal everyday person living in DC, how many people do you really think are going to go to Borneo and help out or like, talk excuse me like i'm gonna go to giant later excuse me who's your who's your manager i need to talk to them about palm oil i feel like you would look so freaking crazy doing that like that doesn't seem like all these things they don't (laughs) (laughs) but but you're special like like this is what you do like i feel like for no person to be like invigorated by the film that seems like a lot well i don't know you haven't watched it yet it's pretty inspiring i know i mean i'm not gonna lie i do want to i need to watch it and i and i and i totally would would attend the thing today but i did have previous plans so oh it's all good yeah. no worries Maybe i'll send get... you the link we can watch it together sometime yeah that'd be cool Maybe yeah get that link that'd be cool yeah but um but yeah so you can go to borneo and help them recover the hydrology of the peat swamps you can also uh, volunteer or donate to orangutan outreach which goes and rescues orangutans and helps rehabilitate them um in their habitats and rehabilitate mm. them and release them and um yeah but the number one thing is to be aware and do something about palm oil because these big companies we drive the demand and thus the destruction yeah it seems like i'm just not aware of palm oil like i think that's the disconnect is like the awareness of palm oil like Mm -hmm. before this i just heard of it but i don't know what products is and now when i go and i look at the label because i feel like it's common for people to look at labels like that now everyone i feel like label checks Mm -hmm. But to notice palm oil, you said you either have to look at the saturated fats, and that's how you know because it won't directly say it. It'll say vegetable oil. They like to lie. Oh. Mm-hmm. Technically, it's not a lie, but like it's very misleading. So if the first ingredient is vegetable oil, that means palm oil. Yeah, most likely. And you can get a full list of the list of the brands that currently use palm oil by going on Mighty Earth does campaigns there they have a list rainforest action network has a list responsible roundtable for palm oil has a list but they're also an organization that has some greenwashing mm-hmm. so yeah but generally wait, wait, what's it's greenwashing greenwashing is when an organization that claims to be doing something green for the environment is just saying that and actually doing the opposite is actually oh. destroying just as much as the other companies because it's kind of like doing one good you now cause another evil kind of thing 
Well, greenwashing is it a good example of Call greenwashing? Out. greenwashing? I, yeah, I need an example here uh, for me today. Well, WWF is doing um, an orangutan, or at least they were a few years ago, an orangutan campaign in Borneo, where they say that they're creating orangutan habitats, but it's really just like a small island of trees in the middle of a palm oil plantation with like a couple of sad orangutans. That's greenwashing. Like their campaign is not really doing much, but they're touting what they're doing. Oh. Um, and so another example would be like. Kit Kat, whatever that brand, saying that they are using responsible palm oil or making the pledge to go palm oil free by a certain year, but mm-hmm. then not actually following up on that. That's greenwashing. It's all talk and no action. They're still they're still buying from companies that are actively cutting the forest. Oh, I see what you're saying. And it's interesting how you play into this because you are essentially the medium of media that lets people know about this and it's like through your storytelling that you're able to give deliver these messages which is yeah i'm trying (laughs) yeah it's like it's like it's like through beautiful documentary work you now make people care because if it was a shitty video it might be like "Eh." but through this journey of this narrative now people can start caring yeah i hope to really touch their heart and show them and tell the story and make it make it watchable make it enjoyable to watch Mm. and shareable so that they'll be inspired and yeah at the very least it'll document what happened for future generations so if your kid was to ask like what's borneo what did it used to be like and then you can show them that it used (laughs) to be a beautiful rainforest until your snack foods killed it oh god (laughs) see see those dunkaroos well that's the reason yeah seriously all these cheap snack brands and like cheap cosmetics and detergents they use palm oil yeah oh so anything cheap essentially that's like the hack of the reason to use palm oil. Yeah, if it's a cheap product, it's probably because it's exploiting the earth. Oh, God, that doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's so, so what now? Like, bad. now that that film is out and you've shown it, is it you're trying to get it like picked up by Netflix? Is that like the, the goose egg kind of thing? Is Netflix is the number one spot or like what's the thought there? That's it. That's distribution is not something that I've worked on much in oh, my okay. career yet. So I'm sort of just learning and figuring it out as we go. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're not leading these projects that you're kind of just helping with them. Yeah. The Borneo project, I am just helping. Okay. Yeah. And the, I'm not trying to say that take anything away from you. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand here. Yeah. Just trying to understand. Because it's. Yeah. Well, filmmaking is. Um, you know, I don't want to say anyone else's job isn't super complex and has a lot to learn, but I feel like filmmaking is one of those careers where you can learn something new every single time you do a film for the rest of your life and still continually get better. But distribution is a whole area of filmmaking that I haven't um, learned much about. I'm starting to learn more mm-hmm. about it. And I think people spend their entire careers like just on the distribution side because to make a film successful, like look at some of the documentaries that have been successful in their mission, right? Blackfin is probably the best yeah, example say, of that, this. That was the first thing I was thinking about. That was the yeah. biggest one. And Blackfin had a really good marketing strategy. Wow. So they started the buzz about the film released before they even released it by having like a bunch of people across the country do private viewing parties and they started building the momentum by creating social media accounts and getting people to talk about it and then i mean they had a really you know lucky break where that um trainer got killed by orca remember that so that was like amazing free publicity and then they released the film oh that they're like the iron's hot let's drop it yeah so that's kind of how that went down and then their goal of the film was something that was very you know measurable and um they ended up removing the ability to have captive orcas 
Oh, whoa. So now there's legislation that prevents orcas from being captive and used for entertainment. So the purpose of the film was achieved. Wow. So is that like in the environmental world that you're in, is is that looked at as kind of like the model for how powerful the film can be? Yeah, totally. (laughs) And I think, yeah, that's a good example of how a film really, really helped the situation. And I think the problems that um, in the films I'm working on are so vast and have so many multi-billion dollar industries depending on them that it's going to be much, it's a much bigger problem. Have you experienced any kind of kickback from that, from the fact that you're making this this content that's essentially against some of the biggest companies in the world? Have you experienced any of those effects? I haven't personally experienced the effects. I'm really lucky about that because I know know that. Yeah, in in um, the Amazon, I worked with several people who are getting death threats. I've heard many stories about environmental activists being killed. There's a great documentary from the from. world what is it um human crisis earth no sorry the um i don't know human rights watch okay human rights watch (laughs) did a three-year investigation 10-year investigation on the all the environmental activists that have gotten killed in the amazon and so you can learn all about that and basically people speaking out against the land grabbing the exploitation of the forest they're just getting killed yeah it doesn't seem that (laughs) difficult if you have billions of dollars to hire some mercenary in a distant land to magically off someone like mm-hmm. and especially when their legalities might let that leak through a little bit mm-hmm. wow yeah and the um one of the people we worked with in the amazon he was a very strategic partner he's awesome his name's gabriel he's a um, brazilian journalist who lives in the brazilian amazon and he was whining and dining these illegal loggers for like six months before he showed up. And then we were there at the right time for them to take us into the forest and watch them cut down logs in a protected area, cut down trees. So we got some cool access there with that footage. And this journalist, he's gotten at least 10 death threats before. He's personally ousted a bunch of these like criminal networks and has gotten them exposed and arrested and put away. And if they get out, you know, he's going to always watch his back. Like I went out for a drink with him and we were going to take a selfie. He's like, I can't have my face out there at all. Like in any way at all. (laughs) So like he's gotten so many death threats to be an environmental activist or to care about the Amazon is to already be putting yourself at risk. Are you worried about that? Um, I'm, I'm not in Brazil, so. Oh, okay. It's if, it's if you're kind of living in Brazil. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. And I hope that my film, you know, that this project reaches a large amount of people and that I can make strategic partnerships. We're working on a partnership with Amazon Watch, with Mighty Earth, and that a lot of people will see it. But until then, I mean, they're not going to, like, go after me. <laughs> well, I, I think it's fascinating now because you're at, like, an early stage of this career of yours of this environmental documentary filmmaking but i can imagine years from now you're probably going to be that guy producing that or be that girl sorry yeah. uh, you know producing that movie or the lead director or the lead filmmaker and then all of a sudden the situation gets a lot different yeah i hope so bring I'm, it on <laughs> bring it on we need people to sacrifice their comfortable normal everyday lives to do something extreme we're at the tipping point we can't wait around anymore for someone else to do it if not me then who you know, I, mean, I love that mindset. I love that mindset. But <laughs> I've already had a great life. Like, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, like, you, it seems like you live this kind of like magical career. 
like from the outside, like it seems like you kind of live this like fantasy life where like you're, and I say that in both a nice way and a backhanded way because it's like, it's so cool. Like people would, I know some people that would love to travel and do that. Like how did you get into even being a part of these awesome uh, like films and documentaries and stuff like that? Well, the best advice I would say is follow your passion. Oh my God, don't say that. <laughs> oh, get out of here, Miss America. No, how did, like how, like it's like how did it, it seems so unobtainable for a normal person like I'm gonna start documentary filmmaking like how did you start doing all of this? Oh no, we, they, we live in a digital age. Like anyone, people, so many people are filmmakers now. True, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I was, um, it's all just making connections in the areas that you want to work in, mm-hmm. and then a lot of times the opportunity presents itself, and you just go for it. Like I was traveling in in Africa when I heard about the Brazilian or the Amazon fires, and I just literally bought a ticket to Lima, Peru. And I'm like, let's just go there and figure out, figure it out. And then we ended up getting the funding from a DC nonprofit, thanks to my awesome friends who were all on board with me. And then like a small team of us like set out. And when you meet people on the ground, things just start happening. Mm. Things just start working out when you don't give up. You keep looking for the story, keep chasing the fire. Is that what it is? You're kind of chasing the next environmental story or the next big thing. And I guess is the Amazon the biggest thing right now? Yeah, it seems like the science is pointing to the fact that this is the last big rainforest and climate stabilization tool. I mean, we've seen in the entire earth. So I think if, you know, we've identified it as the biggest rainforest that we have, yeah. it's kind of like, that's all we got, guys. Yeah, like, exactly. And people just don't get it. Like, oh, let's all get together. If we all get together, we can save the forest. Well, it's, I think the disconnect is like, it's it's the future, right? It's mm-hmm. it's hard to care until it really affects you now, until it is too late. You mm-hmm. know, like most people everywhere, it's kind of like you don't think about the future much, mm-hmm. you know, or, or protecting it. Like you guys, you're all, you're thinking about the future. You're thinking about 50 years, 100 years when you'll be way long gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like 100, maybe like 100 or more, you know. Well, you all, have all, you ever like, look, do you have a cat or a dog? Yeah. You know, like when you look in your eyes and you see the consciousness? Mm-hmm. I mean, all the creatures on the planet have that consciousness. They deserve to be living just as much as we do. And the fact that they won't be able to live much longer because we're destroying their habitat is just so sad. Mm. You know, I instinctually feel the need to do what I can to protect them. Yeah, I mean... Next time you pet your dog, just be like, picture him a, a jaguar. <laughs> I saw those photos you posted of the jaguar and the lions. Were you that close to them? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Jaguars are in South America. Those are leopards. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was not that close. You shouldn't get that close to wildlife. I have a very long zoom lens. Oh, <laughs> actually, I was just thinking, what, what are you bringing out with you to do these? Like, what's what's your gear looking like? I have a Sony a7R 3 Sony squad. Yeah, it's very small and compact. I love it. I've never tried a Canon or anything, but I like the Sony because it has the built-in stabilization. It does amazing 4K. It has built-in 120 frames per second. You can do time-lapse and slow motion. Mm. Um, And yeah, I'm looking to upgrade to like the FS9, the next new one, because for, for instance, like even to get your film considered to go on Netflix, I don't even have the right gear yet. I'm I'm working my way up. There's a gear specification even on Netflix? Oh yeah. No way. Yeah. 
Are you sure? Yeah, you have to have like an FS9 or above or like a red camera. That doesn't make sense. I could have swore that Travis Scott documentary was shot on someone's freaking iPhone. There's no... <laughs> okay, for the purpose of storytelling, okay. if it's an amazing story, then they will accept. But yes, the the vast majority or at least most of it needs to be in the gear list specified. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. So... But it makes sense you'd use a Sony because it's small, compact, mirrorless. Mm-hmm. You can carry more gear with you. Yeah. What about the battery issue with those things? I don't that I don't find there's a battery issue. I have multiple replacement batteries, and even when I was out in the middle of the forest, I had um, portable chargers to always keep it charged. Oh yeah, it's interesting. Like, imagine you're hiking, what you're you're carrying and hiking, mm-hmm. lugging all this crap with you. Oh yeah. What what is like your normal sort of like bag? Like what are you taking with you? I'm curious. Ooh, normally I would have it with me in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have giant backpacks that mm-hmm. have like the built-in padded parts for the camera. Mm. And are you going with like one camera body? Like what's that look like? Yeah, I have one camera body, but I'm looking to get two. That seems risky. That seems so risky, especially being in like a humid area like that. I know because it's like got the mirror, big sensor right there and you're exposed to get to moisture. You just have to be really careful and always keep a cap or put the lens on real fast and make sure you don't get any dust or moisture on the sensor. Yeah, because I could imagine if you're out in Borneo and your batteries are all dead and you, you can't charge them or if your SD cards all crap out or if your one body got hit, yeah. it's like that seems like a situation. Then you're screwed. Not the wood. <laughs> yeah, right? That seems like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I haven't missed any shots yet. Yeah. Hopefully that won't happen. But I think with filmmaking, you always have to make mistakes in order to learn for the next time. You know, like in the past, I might have been stuck without enough battery. And then I learned. Now I have more batteries. <laughs> Dude, there was one podcast where I was recording audio off the wrong thing. And now for every podcast, I am like a demon. I have like a checklist and yeah. I'm going through it. So I'm like, I can never have that happen again. It's just so much. Exactly. So we all have our production checklists. I have a whole folder on my Google Drive of notes from all my different shoots I've been on <sighs> with, you know, what I did wrong, what I can improve on. And that's really helpful. But I think my next steps in my career is to join a experienced team because I've been doing freelance in my last couple of jobs. I was sort of one with more experience than the other people, which is great sometimes, but I want to join an experienced team with a big budget film. And what's that? What's an experienced team? Um, people have been working on a lot of different films for a long time and then I can learn all their tricks. I've worked on a few with a few really experienced and seasoned filmmakers in the past, but it's been a couple of years of doing freelance and other stuff. <laughs> yeah, like what's the next? Li- so the next step for you is to join the experience team that assists in helping making the movies. Yeah, is that what it is? Well, I'm going to Oregon next week to work with a production company, and they were in the Amazon at the same time filming. Oh, and I got introduced by the journalist I was telling you about. So I'm excited to meet them because they have experience in distribution of films. And so my number one focus is getting this Amazon film out, you know, and forming media partnerships with different nonprofits. They can distribute it through their people. And then also to start hosting screenings and learning the business side of getting the screenings out and getting a distribution plan and all of that. So to maximize viewership. That's wicked. Mm Mm-hmm. But but right now, it's right in the middle of this Brazilian documentary. Mm-hmm. That's all you're working on right now. Yeah, and figuring out a distribution plan for the Borneo's Vanishing Tribes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll work itself out. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed, I'm sure it will. Well, if I talk about it with everyone, and maybe people watching this podcast will have a connection. Maybe their friend is a distributor and might have some, you know, 
the yeah. more connections that I can make with people all wanting to work on the same cause is what's going to get it done. Now, 100%, you never know how close you are or who's listening. Like, you mm -hmm. never know what degree of separation you are from that guy who knows that guy who owns the distribution or whose friends yeah, are. You know, it's like, it's so exactly. weird how life works out like that. And one amazing thing that I watched last weekend at Cinema Verde was called um, Eco, it was called Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist Battle for Our Planet. And it was a documentary by Steve Brown, who was, he was an entertainment tonight producer in los angeles he did that for six months of the year and then the other six months of the year he was one of the original sea shepherds remember the sea shepherds they would get no. these okay so the sea shepherds was i mean the most extreme environmental activist in the world that i know of Ooh. and so like <laughs> they started out by just buying these old junky ships and sailing them out into the middle of the ocean and finding these whaling ships that were breaking international laws by whaling in international waters mm. just killing obscene amounts of whales Whoa. for one reason or the other um in the case of the japanese it was literally just to try to lay claim to antarctica to a portion of antarctica what? and so the sea shepherds they had all volunteers um they had almost no money and they had these old junky ships and before they they would literally sail out to the ocean find the whaling ships and ram into them what yeah just hit them and so before they even hit the ship though they would have the press release written up they would have the cameras ready and it was a media stunt to call attention to whaling to eventually get the legislation through Whoa. and this was back before social media when they started and so because they had all the connections in the entertainment industry they would get it on the evening news and they had a network and they would make connections constantly with celebrities who would then get on the talk shows and plug uh, their mission because they got the power yeah so I'm trying to, I met Steve Brown last weekend. We talked at length and he's got connections for me. He said he's got a Brazilian soap opera star who would be interested in helping promote the Amazon project. <laughs> That's interesting how yeah. it's like you turn to the celebrities to promote these things. Yeah, because they have thousands of followers. If I were to start an Instagram account for my film, I would get like three followers the next year. You know, people don't, what about don't actively in, look for this. What about this. influencers now? Is that like a new thing? Because I yeah. feel like there's influencers and YouTubers have way more of an audience especially an audience like a young well they have way more audience than the celebrities now that's a good point too yeah i have a list of influencers who have like a niche market and environmental and wildlife type of followers so i'm gonna i have like a whole spreadsheet i'm gonna start oh. reaching out to them and see and create you know um, a folder of material that they can choose to publish that's interesting what an interesting strategy I think it's the best strategy for trying to raise awareness and get campaign material out. Because at the end of the day, is it that you care about the animals or you just care about the environment as a whole and the animals are included? Like, what, what is the care there? <laughs> Me personally? Yeah, you personally. Um, I care a lot about the future of being able to live on this planet. Mm. And the animals are, you know, deserving of living there with us. That's my whole mission. Mm. So it is <laughs> about the this, animals. Yes. Okay, I don't know. I would say it's equal parts about keeping the earth in a habitable state <laughs> and keeping the animals here with us. Because if, I feel like our disconnection and the reason why so many people are having mental health problems nowadays is because we're killing this connection with nature. Interesting. When you're out in nature and you're experiencing an authentic experience where you see a monkey just like being cute on a branch and you're just immersed in this gorgeous forest that's when you feel connected that's when you have this moment of joy and mm. bliss it's not going to come from your screen that's and so, so many people they feel this disconnect and i feel like 
I mean, it's being proven that people have mental health problems now more than ever because they're not having a nature experience often enough. And so people can go out into nature, do sustainable tourism, support maybe Renzori trekking, or go visit an indigenous tribe in the Amazon, maybe take some ayahuasca with them, get connected with the forest. Wait, wait, have you done ayahuasca? Yeah. What was it like? It was... It was the most inspiring experience of my life. Did you puke everywhere? <laughs> I mean, not everywhere. I kept it relatively contained. Oh, you were a neat ayahuasca user. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I imagine you did. You go on these crazy trips. There's no way you don't run some psychedelics and you're just like, yeah. sure, I'm with a shaman. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my dream to do a traditional ayahuasca ceremony. I've done it in Costa Rica mm-hmm. um, twice on two separate occasions. And um that was a more tame version of ayahuasca. The traditional communities throughout the Amazon, especially in Peru, use very intense brews. It's sort of hardcore. It's just the shaman singing. It's just you in the dark forest or whatever the vision quest might be in the daytime forest. Um, there's lots of ways to, to do it. But if you do, if you do it, um, you will have an overwhelming feeling of connection with the world around you and it yeah. will inspire you. I haven't met a single person who's done it who didn't say that they got more insight about their role in their life on this planet. I've seen a lot of footage about people taking these trips to go to Peru or Brazil or anywhere like that, the mm-hmm. rainforest, and going to these tribes and the shamans and doing these alleged ceremonies of ayahuasca, whether it's for drug addictions or personal development or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. It's very useful for all of those things. What was your reason for doing it? Um, my reason was I love psychedelics. Oh my God, today is perfect timing. What is it? So today is the day of coming out about plant medicines. My friend Dave, who I met at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Spain, who I I was a videographer for Mm -hmm. in in May, he started a campaign called Thank You Plant Medicine. Everyone should go on and say how plant medicines have helped them, whether that be um, through mushrooms or through whatever plant medicines, there's lots of them, cannabis, and just share how it's helped you because Mm. it's helped so many people and it's just not being talked about enough publicly. That is true. That is very true. It is still kind of weird to talk about psychedelics. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. weird to talk about weed anymore, but it's weird to talk about like DMT and ayahuasca and mushrooms still. Like that's still very taboo in today's society. Totally. And the vast amount of older people in this country still think that you might jump off a building and die if you take it or something (laughs) because they've been brainwashed by the war on drugs. I mean, that was a crazy era just looking at it. I mean, I didn't live through it, but like we kind of saw the residuals of it growing up. Yeah. But (sighs) so if you look into the work of ICERS and MAPS, they're the two leading organizations that are getting MDMA-based psychotherapy and plant medicine-based psychotherapy to be used for PTSD, for anxiety, for depression, being used on veterans. Even the, I was just talking with um, the guy who's in charge of MAPS, Um, Rick Doblin and he was like I just came back from meeting with the Chinese military and they're gonna adopt MDMA assisted psychotherapy to help with their I know MDMA is not a plant medicine but it's very helpful for being able to open up and connect with your inner self to understand your traumas yeah no I've heard people on Joe Rogan's podcast talk about treating PTSD with MDMA or Mm -hmm. or some kind of psychoactives as a way to release and face your demons or something like that yeah and it's very and something like that is very um setting based that's the key for successful uh, assisted psychotherapy is yeah, the right the setting se- the setting of what you yeah. trip is probably the most important thing like um oh someone just peeking in the window <laughs> i don't know what they're doing yeah but um 
I'm so I'm so curious. Like I I personally want to do more psychedelics, whether it's like shrooms or MDMA, um, or DMT and stuff like that. Like I'm personally so curious, but there's no way I want to just like do this in my room. Like it seems no, like if you're in go Peru, go into the nature. It seems like if you're in nature <laughs> or in Peru, it seems more fitting. Like the one time I did shrooms, I was at a beach house and I was running outside. Yeah, and it, you, it was the you most. You just want to go outside. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. It was like your body told you to go outside. Yeah. It was crazy. Like it was like this weird connection, but it was a fascinating point for you to talk about the 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 illnesses or the the the, the illnesses people have and suffer from the mental illnesses because of the the world and the society and the very much a digital age that we're in where people are killing all the animals. We're so disconnected, let alone people in cities. Um, yeah, animals or nature or whatever it is. It's yeah. like. You know, and it it's it's not talked about much how just going outside and maybe just going on a hike mm-hmm. might actually clear your mind. Yes. I would say that society is missing a huge component mm. of our well-being overall. And if you look at all the indigenous cultures around the world, they always had a coming-of-age experience where, I mean, I guess like when you're 13, you can have a bar mitzvah, but it's not going to help you get in touch with your inner self and understand the universe, where they had coming-of-age experiences where kids would go out and become an adult through a near-death experience or a vision quest, a sweat lodge, and we just don't have this extreme event to help us become an adult i mean the most like extreme thing people do especially in america is just get drunk when they're 21 and like go to a frat party and get wasted but that's not helping you become a better person or helping society at all (laughs) in fact that's devolving (laughs) so you're saying that like there should be some sort of test or some sort of trials that you have to endure to sort of become a man or a woman yeah i think that people should have a coming of age experience where and i think psychedelics could be extremely helpful for this where they have a wilderness immersion go by themselves into nature that seems interesting yes well i mean i hiked for a few weeks by myself in vermont on the long trail and it was life-changing really um, when i was 18 you did this when you were 18 yeah and for me it was life-changing that's one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about the earth is because i had this profound connection from a young age and that became part of my identity it's just like you know you feel it and deep in your soul when you can understand how everything is interconnected in nature and that's like yes i love it and i think that people need to have more wilderness immersion experiences maybe with psychedelics maybe not it's up to your preference but it has a profound effect now i I definitely think everyone should do psychedelics at some point in their life yeah It's it's like a weird sort of awakening wait hold up one second the the word means understanding your own mind what's up hello should we wrap up soon All right. Oh, no worries. No worries. What's going on, guys? This is Amir. This is his, this is his studio space that he graciously lets me borrow. Thank you. <laughs> but anyways. Um, yeah. I, mean, how like, much, I just have a question for you. Yeah. Sorry. How much time have you ever spent alone? Like not communicating with anyone, just being alone? A lot, actually. Okay. Yeah, so I, you're a rare case. Yeah. I, I was an only child mm-hmm. and still an only child. So I've, I've dealt with a lot. I wouldn't say lo- I wouldn't say loneliness, but it's the only way to say it, but not in a sad way. Like mm-hmm. I've deal with loneliness and I like to be alone. So mm-hmm. I'm really good at being alone and dealing with that. Like yeah. I enjoy it and I need it personally. But I've never done it in the woods. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
well, maybe it could help you to go in the woods. I just find a lot of people spend a lot of their lives distracted, not living fully in the present moment. Mm. I learned a lot about Buddhism on my Himalayan Buddhist pilgrimage and being mindful in the present moment is a huge way to improve your own life. And the Buddhists do it, you know, and meditation is for the purpose of enlightening all of the conscious beings on earth. So, yeah. Well, Chelsea, I'm so sorry that this interview got, has get cut off a little bit because <laughs> I'm enjoying talking to you so much. I, when next I'm enjoying ta- it too. The next time you're back in town, can I have you on the show? Is that going to be yeah, cool? Yeah, I would love that. And hopefully that I'll have be. a lot more things that updates on my current film projects and future film projects and ways everyone can help the situation. Awesome. Well, everyone, yeah. please go check out, wait, what was the name of the Borneo film? Borneo's Vanishing Tribes, vanishingtribesfilm.org. And I'll have updates on all my film projects on chelseagreenmedia.com. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll get the info from you. I'll link it in like the YouTube description and stuff like that if people awesome. are curious. Yay, thank you so much. Awesome. Well, guys, that's it. That's the angle. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>